Hey folks, welcome back to the show. Today's guest is someone I've been looking forward to having on the show ever since I heard about his work creating a new open clinical data set from the University of Amsterdam Medical Center. Um, from an engineering and data science perspective, you know, this is the data that fuels our work. And from the clinical science perspective, this brings in a lot of really interesting questions from how do you actually create a data set? How do you select the data that you're going to be recording? Um, which aspects of digital medicine really represent the clinical mechanisms at work. And so, and then basically bring that together. How are you making sure that patients who are being recorded actually benefit from this data? And what are the ethical implications of that? So I have a really exciting guest today, Paul Elbers. Been looking forward to interviewing him for a while. If this type of work interests you, don't forget to subscribe, leave a like, leave a comment. And now we will uh, do our quick little intro jingle and then on to Paul Elbers. Welcome to the Pod of Asclepius, your healthcare technology podcast for the technical crowd. We're bringing the technical experts of engineering, entrepreneurship, data science, and regulation straight to your earbuds. And here's your host, Glenn Wright Colopy. All right, great. So, Paul, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. We always enjoy having clinicians on. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your research. Sure, Glenn. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's a great uh, honor to to be on your show. Um, so uh, my name is Paul Elbers, and I am a, a clinical intensivist, so a, a medical specialist in the field of uh, intensive care medicine at uh, Amsterdam UMC, which is uh, obviously in Amsterdam in the in the Netherlands. And um, besides being a clinician, I also lead a research group. It is called uh, Right Data Right Now. And the specific purpose of this uh, group is to bring data science and more specifically um, predictive models, usually geared towards machine learning nowadays, to the bedside of critically ill patients. And that is, of course, for the benefit of the future health of these patients. Great. And um, maybe just to warm everyone up, you could tell us about the uh, the database that you have created, because it when I saw it at first, it seemed like something on par with PhysioNet and things like that. It reminded me of it was clearly a huge undertaking. And maybe you could just tell us what are all the components in this data set that you've created? Sure. So, uh, so uh, Amsterdam UMC DB, as it is uh, called, it's uh, it is it is actually inspired by the by the work uh, done by by PhysioNet and in particular their uh, their Mimic database containing. Uh, the identified ICU data. So uh, much like that, Amsterdam US, EMCDB uh, also contains um, uh, ICU data related to real intensive care patients, having been treated at uh, our ICU between the years 2003 and 2016. Um, it is uh, routinely collected data from uh, these patients and of course, uh, robustly de-identified. I, I, I guess we will, will come to speak uh, in, uh, in much greater detail uh, about, that, uh, about that later. Uh, but for now, it is, I think, important to understand that the main difference between our database and uh, MIMIC, I mean, there are many, but the most important ones is that it is more granular so the data density is uh, is richer, and also the, uh, the the patients are obviously from uh, Europe, and because intensive care medicine is structured differently between uh, continents, uh, these patients are generally sicker than those uh, than in Mimic. Yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, you've naturally led to the first question that I want to have, but just to clarify. Um, <clears throat> One of the key differences in sort of clinical paradigms between uh, U.S. hospitals, for example, and um, European and U.K. hospitals is the classification of sort of that intensive care unit and the step-down unit and things like that, where um, in, broadly speaking, in U.K. and European hospitals, the intensive care unit um, and those more critical wards have more acutely ill patients. Um, and then patients who are less acutely ill are triaged into a more general, less acute ward. Whereas in the US, there's a bit more of mixing at the intensive care level where the intensive care and the critical care patients are a much broader range of 
critical illness. So there's less acute patients in that. Is that is that how you describe? What, what, what's a better way to uh, say that, Paul? No, so I think you uh, you describe it quite correctly. So I mean, the the sheer number of intensive care or critical care beds uh, per uh, per capita is uh, is much larger much larger in the in the states as compared to my country, uh, the Netherlands. So this uh, means that there is both a higher occupancy rate in general uh, in critical care, but also that critical care is uh, reserved predominantly for really sick people. So that is probably best reflected in the uh, in the intubation uh, rate of patients. So the patients on the, on mechanical ventilation, which is uh, yeah, which is uh, very high in uh, in the Amsterdam database whereas it is less in uh, other databases such as Mimic. Yeah, Paul, I have to admit, you're immediately just like the highlight reel of my clinical interests, uh, bringing up respiratory uh, mechanically ventilated patients who are, I think, probably one of the most interesting set of patients, both from a data perspective and from a clinical science perspective, and really pushing the bounds of clinical science to its limit in the sense that, you know, these are patients where there are certain aspects that are heavily controlled and they are heavily monitored, but there are so many confounding aspects that it's hard to really, you know, pinpoint down for a patient by patient that this is a patient who is essentially repeating the same process as another patient. But I wanted to, uh, instead of talking about that, because, you know, that's a very deep rabbit hole to get down into, you're an intensivist. And I'm curious a bit, is this does this database reflect your clinical interests as an intensivist? So is this uh, primarily an uh, critical care and intensive care database, or are there also patients from the general ward? So this data has been collected exclusively uh, uh, on the intensive care units. Uh, so it uh, it mainly consists of a lot of data points mostly related to monitoring devices, but also to life support devices with a granularity of up to uh, one data point per minute per parameter or feature, so you will. And so there are about just short of a, a billion data points in the data set. But uh, again, as I previously told you, it is ICU only. So although there will be some data from the tra trajectories of these patients, just prior to the ICU, I would say the the vast vast majority of data actually is has been collected from their ICU stay. So so uh, to answer your question more directly, so it is exactly my clinical interest these patients. Great, and uh, just to help clarify for data scientists, um, to put this a little bit more in data scientist parlance, um. I think one of the interesting things about this is uh, that when we say that this is exclusively ICU patients and he's collected all this data on ICU, very critical patients, um, maybe to the untrained ear that might sound like, oh, this is a very small subset of hospital patients. But I think what's important about this is that what, what Paul is saying is that he's, he's collected a set of patients who typically are very sparse. So the data on them is very sparse. Um, from the perspective of when patients are critically ill, they can be critically ill in a great many ways. And so by focusing on this specific patient population, he's really helping try to sort of explore that the data space of the most acutely ill patients. So it's sort of like he's capturing the tail end data uh, where we have the least data, which is also where we need the most clinical inference and we need the most help with clinical inference. So to me, this is really exciting that you have essentially uh, so densely sampled and densely monitored these patients who previously we have the least amount of data on. Um, so you're sort of exploring a, a new part of a jungle, um, if you will, of uh, of the available clinical data. And um, but and so along that note, I'm just curious, could you just explain to us a little bit sort of what are the typical uh, clinical scenarios of these patients involved. We mentioned um, mechanical ventilation, so patients who are unable to breathe for themselves. What are the other sort of typical um, clinical scenarios that these patients are in? Yeah, so the, the variety of critically ill patients is uh, quite uh, large. 
of course, they all have in common that they are uh, pretty sick, right? Otherwise, they would be called critically ill. And uh, to reflect first a little bit on your previous comments, so it's important to understand that it is important to address their health and try to improve that by, for example, algorithms, because uh, as the mortality is high, it has a direct um, benefit to these patients, but also the costs of intensive care per patient are, are very, very high. Um, in Europe, it is estimated to cost about uh, 3,000 euros, so about 3,500 US dollars a day, but that is, that is um, many times more for US patients. So, so that is why I think these data is important. Uh, to go back to your question related to the different patient uh, journeys you might uh, you might expect uh, in a typical uh, ICU from Europe, this can vary. For example, from patients with uh, respiratory failure, for example, suffering from uh, severe pneumonia, to patients after a uh, cardiac uh, arrest, after which they would typically be treated uh, in intensive care units and also being mechanically ventilated. Uh, to a large majority of patients um, having been diagnosed with uh, with sepsis, so a bloodstream uh, infection with microorganisms, which usually leads to uh, multiple organ failure. So these patients are typically hooked up to uh, a lot of machines, uh, also the mechanical ventilator, but maybe also uh, a circulatory support with a intra-aortic balloon pump or even a heart-lung machine, which is often called extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or dialysis machines such as continuous hemofiltration, um, monitors, of course. Uh, there's lab works that uh, are uh, up to 16 times a day. We have, uh, we have lab values for these uh, persons, and there's, of course, imaging. So you name it, it will be in the data sets. So they're very densely monitored because they're so acutely ill. I think that what this highlights is that while all these patients are similar in the sense that they are very critically ill, they are all critically ill in very heterogeneous, very different ways. So a patient with sepsis, for example, while yes, they are effectively risking death and will have a high chance of mortality, the underlying mechanisms that will kill them are different from a patient, for example, who has cardiac arrest and things like that. There are, of course, comorbidities in that, but the, the idea is that they're, the, these patients are only similar in the sense that they are at high risk of death, physiologically, phenotypically, things like that. They are very, these patients diverge greatly. So I guess if a data scientist were to come in and start looking at this from a bird's eye view, is the data segmented into things like, okay, here is a, um, here's like a cardiac arrest ward. Here is the, like the neuro ward. Here is the respiratory ward. Is that sort of the first high level view that people would take? Yeah, Glenn, uh, excellent comment. So, um, so first of all, uh, when you're really sick, patients tend to take a common physiological pathway of multiple organ failure. But having said that, it is, it is of course important to uh, to be able to stratify between the patients because because you are spot on with your with your comments there. So typically, ICUs in the Netherlands and and uh, I would say the most of Europe are not organized uh, like you suggest uh, by specialty such as uh, cardiac care ICU or neuro ICU. So it's so we have a mixed ICU. However, the uh, the admissions type admission types are recorded for uh, both for administrative purposes, but also basically just because they are in the routinely collected patient data. So, for example, we have uh, broad categories such as surgical admissions, medical admissions, but also uh, uh, have narrowed that down to reason for admissions such as uh, following cardiac surgery, neurosurgery, or uh, after uh, sepsis or after cardiac arrest. So you would. It would, they're they're pretty well labeled, so data scientists would be uh, would be able to easily um, easily stratify these patients for uh, for the use of their analysis. That's really that's really cool. So, uh, and I think I think that's one thing that's always worth keeping in mind when you're trying to view data sets that are as comprehensive as the one that you've created. That essentially, when you are looking at these patients, they are all co-located within the same ward. 
um, and you can stratify via the data, but essentially we aren't looking at sort of uh, geographically different patients as in they're, they're located in different seg segments of the hospital, which would be the case for other uh, data sets. Um, for example, I believe in more like in the UK and the US where these patients are uh, stratified and I guess sequestered according to uh, clinical classification. So that, that's really interesting. So one of the things I want to talk about, because as a clinician, you are at the interface between patients and their healthcare outcomes and patients and their experience. Uh, you have essentially a front row view. Actually, you're not even in the row. You're up on stage as the clinician um, with these patients having their clinical outcomes. And I'm a bit curious about from your clinical perspective, uh, given that there, there is a burden here that you need to be making sure that the, that the data will be of benefit to the patients and also not of risk to patients, for example, de-anonymizing them, uh, displaying data that could be used to identify them in some way, and also just sort of preserving the dignity of the patient um, whose data we are using regardless of what their personal outcome is. Because, you know, What's data to a data scientist is actually, you know, a human being. It's themselves to the patient. It's another person's family member's outcome. Um, and I'm a bit curious about this, and this is just going to be a broad question. What are some of the priorities that you have from an ethical perspective beyond the obvious things like de-anonymization that you look forward to just to make sure that this data will be of benefit to a clinical population and is therefore worth the burden? Yeah, well, so it's probably important to first point out that uh, the release of uh, Amsterdam EMCDB is actually part of a broader initiative by the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. Um, the society has uh, put uh, put forward a, a mission called the Data Sharing Initiative. Um, the reason being that uh, up until very recently, there was only freely uh, intensive care patient data available from the US. And um, that means that these patients and the models that are being created for them do not necessarily, or actually most likely do not transfer easily to, uh, well, across the pond, so to say. So um, that, uh, brought us to a challenge that you uh, alluded to, because in Europe, the uh, privacy laws, and the, the main one is called the uh, GDPR, so the, the General Data Protection Regulation. It's a, it's a European-wide uh, regulation that is considered uh, law in, in all of the countries in the European Union. So, but this law is a, uh, is a bit stricter than uh, the uh, US uh, privacy laws, um, which are often referred to as uh, HIPAA. Uh, so that means that uh, we, by definition, had a large challenge related to the de-identification strategy that, uh, that we took, uh, because uh, the simple removal of uh, of uh, identifiable uh, uh, objects is not enough for this regulation. And also from a clinical perspective, I think it is, it is actually debatable whether that uh, is enough. So uh, as you said uh, earlier, uh, and I fully agree with this, I mean, when you look at the data as a data scientist, you might not, not always recognize that underneath this data is a real patient that has probably suffered, may have died, and has basically donated their data through us for the benefit of future patients. And it is very important to remember that even though these data has been thoroughly de-identified to comply with the law, it is, it is still very much needed to be aware of, of the fact that you need to treat this data with the dignity that comes with treating patients. Um, so, uh, does that answer your question partly, or, or, or do you want to discuss a different topic? I, I think that's a very good uh, beginning to the question. As a clinician, what would you consider to be a good return for the patient population for having donated their data, so to say? Um, where is it just if we can objectively create algorithms that provide a measurable benefit to future patients, that that is 
I guess, sufficient and worthy of the burden of collecting this current data? Is that just a good, is that, is that sufficient? Or as a clinician, do you think it needs to go beyond that in some way in order to make it uh, worthwhile for the patients who are currently going under the burden of monitoring and extra collection? Yeah, so uh, it, it is a difficult question to answer uh, because uh, it comes with a, with a, with a lot of um, cultural perspective, uh, I would say. So, so in Europe, healthcare is mostly based on uh, the principles of solidarity. Um, most countries have um, uh, uh, almost 100% coverage of health insurance, and in some countries, it's even uh, the, the 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 public hospitals are are free to the to the to the public. So that means that in Europe there is a strong um, notion, if you will, to also be a, a kind of uh, wanting to help by donating your data. So 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 this is the the this this should this should should be some basis of uh, of viewing how patients and doctors uh, deal with this, and this is exactly why we want to make this data well basically freely uh, available uh, of course you need to you need to fill out some forms to access the data but basically anyone in the world can can use it uh, because we feel that this data should especially not be only available to those who are able to pay for it for example the uh, the large tech companies or uh, conglomerates of uh, of uh, pharmaceutical companies i'm not saying that they should not have access to the data because i think they can also benefit future patients but it is very important that these data are also accessible to the public domain and by the public domain i mean healthcare institutions universities data scientists now Mimic has been very, very popular. So I think uh, almost 10,000 people would have access, would, would, would now have access. And um, I think many, many hundreds of models have been built. So, uh, so I expect that this Amsterdam UMC database will, uh, will follow suit and hopefully also the other initiatives uh, promoted by the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine to, to also share their data. I'm, I'm, I'm not expecting that all these models will make it to the bedside. But as my research group locally specializes in actually bringing models to the bedside by integrating them into the electronic health records, it can be a great way of using the, uh, basically the, the, yeah, basically what we're doing is crowdsourcing the, the opportunity to help here and use the wisdom of the world and those that want to help uh, improve the care of uh, critically ill patients. We're, we're basically using this knowledge to to then test that hopefully soon locally to 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 use these models um, for real patients we are seeing now. That's really interesting, and uh, it actually segues into the next sort of section that I wanted to discuss, which was the actual the algorithms for clinical decision making. Um, now, of course, you know, every data scientist has like 20 algorithms, you know, that they're uh, rare and ready to go that they've tested out um, and things like that. But I think one of the things I, while we have a clinician at hand to answer these questions, I'm curious from your perspective, sort of what, um, what clinical settings and sort of what physiological uh, mechanisms do you think are most apt for data analysis and predictive algorithms and things like that? Because, um, you know, you can always you can always try to create an, al an algorithm that tries to map, you know, inputs A onto outcome B. But the fact is, you know, there are a smaller subset of them that are actually providing information that a clinician can use to actually improve the patient's outcome. Um, and so, this is a very broad question, but are there what are certain aspects of it that, for example, that are easily interpretable or actionable by a clinician? What are the areas that you think are quite useful to say, um, here's where an algorithm can really help us make hard choices um, based on the clinical science, not just the data? Yeah. 
Yeah, so this is, of course, the uh, the holy grail uh, of uh, of predictive analytics and uh, personalized medicine you're talking about. So um, reflecting on that, uh, I would first like to comment that it is really problematic that there are so many models being built that do not make it uh, to the to the bedside. So if you if you look at the uh, technology technology readiness levels introduced by by NASA originally for their uh, for their uh, uh, space missions, uh, it is a uh, it, it's it's usually a nine point scale where where nine means that it is uh, uh, actively clinically used at the bedside, but most models only reside at level three, four, five maximum. So that is a problem, and the reason why that is, and this is exactly what we're trying to to address by releasing Amsterdam CDB, is that data scientists and clinicians don't generally know each other that well. So they, they tend to not talk enough to each other. So that is that is why we have um, uh, posed a, a number of uh, uh, rules to gain access. And the most important one of this is that data scientists need to co-sign the access form with an intensivist. So they uh, will actually start talking to each other. Um, so having said that, so so uh, there are two uh, major categories that clinicians uh, uh, would like to use uh, models for. One is related to the organization of intensive care units. So that is uh, so that would uh, relate to uh, predictions of how many patients we can expect to be admitted to intensive care within a certain time frame, or uh, whether or not they would be uh, expected to be readmitted soon after they would have been uh, discharged. So I would I would group them under the term organizational, and the other ones are more uh, more clinical. And to uh, to give you an example that we have been uh, actively pursuing, and it's currently live at the bedside. So we are predicting for every individual patient the exact amount of antibiotic that he or she might need at a, at a given time instead of uh, using standard dosing. And we're currently testing that in a, a randomized controlled clinical trial. But you can also think of uh, things like uh, uh, can, can or can I not um, uh, remove the, uh, the mechanical ventilation tube uh, in this patient? Will this patient uh, develop a um, heart rhythm disturbance such as atrial fibrillation in the in the next six hours? Is the lab value that is um, higher than expected here? Is that something I should really worry about, or can I just ignore it? Or uh, will this patient become more infectious over the over the next six hours? It is very important there that. That, uh, that the clinician should be able to see that these predictions are actionable. And uh, because it doesn't really help you that much if you are, uh, are presented with a prediction that you feel you cannot really do anything about. It is therefore also quite helpful uh, if the models are at least partly explainable. So it, it, Give clinicians a little more trust in the uh, in the model that is at hand, although not. I mean, most people say this, but I think it's a little exaggerated. So it's not really a a a condition that is an absolute requirement, because if clinicians will see that the model is usually right, they don't tend to really mind that they don't fully understand what is going on in the black box because um yeah if you look at it most clinicians can be considered a black box too right so that so you would need to also trust your your other consultants uh, on some opinions they have uh, but having said that actionability and explainability are of course uh, uh, very important there Yeah, that's that, that. That is really interesting, especially the because you know an algorithm, even if it's not perfectly right, if it sort of is capable of spurring further clinical investigation. So, for example, if a clinician doesn't entirely understand why an algorithm has come to its exact decision, there's nothing that prevents a clinician to look at the components of this or the patient's information and try to start understand and sort of detective out or sort of piece together what is actually wrong with the patient. So the algorithm, you know, doesn't need to be necessarily 
doing the decision work of the, of the clinician. It can just be helping the clinician direct their focus to figure out what, why a certain patient is abnormal. It can be you know, the beginning of that clinical investigation, not the end decision by itself. Sure. Yeah. So I uh, I agree fully there. So it is important that of of course that uh, these models uh, uh, are safe. So um, so they uh, they need to be tested well before uh, before use. Um, there is also a European regulation related to, to that called the the medical device regulation. Uh, so that means that uh, it is becoming harder and harder for uh, for clinicians and, and uh, research groups to bring a model to the bedside at times when it is most needed. But that is also for a reason. So you want to be sure that uh, that the models don't uh, don't produce uh, advice that uh, that is obviously wrong. On the other hand, so I believe in a thing that is popular now called hybrid intelligence. So trying to combine the intelligence provided by predictive models with that of clinicians. So as long as there is a uh, so-called uh, air gap between the uh, prediction and uh, the actual action following it, and as long as there is a clinician in between, I think uh, I think the world can only get better uh, by by trying to explore uh, how that might improve the, the health of future patients. And I have also noticed, uh, because we have two models uh, live in our clinic, that, um, that the fear that clinicians I mean, some data scientists fear that clinicians might not use their uh, their models or predictions because they uh, they may feel they don't understand it or they are they uh, they have uh, the feeling that they might be replaced. But that is not my experience at all. I mean, doctors really love it because they just acknowledge that medicine is very hard. They have their specific expertise and uh, and also a lot of experience, depending on the seniority. So they, they, they do bring in a, a great uh, level of professionalism that is needed, but they are very ready to acknowledge that it's just impossible to oversee the large data streams that, uh, that come towards them from uh, all our monitors and devices uh, minute by minute or even second by second. So it is very helpful to have a computer help you with that. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that can never be understated about a computer operating in something like the critical care world, where you know these data streams are continuous. They're very high density. They're high, very high frequency. Um, there are a multitude of modalities and, or you can consider them data streams that each individual patient is uh, creating. And a clinician can only be in so many places at once, whereas a computer, as frankly, stupid as computers can be, they have nothing better to do than just sit there and just stare at the data. They're, I sort of uh, compare them to the, they're like spiders in a web. They're always just, they have nothing better to do than just sort of sit there in that web and wait for a fly to come and shake the web and act on that. Whereas, you know, human beings, they wear out, they get tired, they need to be many places. Um, so that specific aspect of algorithmic intelligence, just the perseverance and continuity is something that shouldn't be underestimated as a strength somewhat unique to computers. No, exactly. So, um, and, and, and not only they, uh, they are just there sitting and waiting for things to happen, they, they also have the, nowadays the capability, uh, and humans don't, to, uh, yeah, to consider all data points that uh, are being thrown at them, whereas, uh, well, human beings, they, yeah, they can... I mean, it's just physically impossible to uh, to understand the magnitudes and the hidden signals uh, from these data streams. Yeah, I think that brings up a really important point where the computers have a unique aspect just due to their increased computation um, and ability to focus through that computation um, that they can essentially consider um, different components and conditionalities that human beings can't, where, you know, uh, it's very easy for a computer to say, well, let's look at this data stream, condition it on this one and provide some type of complex inference. Um, and then they can flip it around and compare data stream two back onto data stream one. And they can do all these different comparisons very quickly and continuously, whereas a human being essentially sort of needs to take sparse elements of the data and only consider them more or less um, 
individually. And, you know, when a, cl a clinician can put multiple data components together um, on, you know, well-known physiological mechanisms, but, you know, when you're trying to have it be continuous and um, through maybe mechanisms that a, a clinician doesn't consider as much, that's where a computer can come in. One of the, the challenges I think that uh, algorithms have, and I was curious about this because you've you've created this very dense multimodal data set across a large number of patients. And when we're trying to uh, create algorithms, typically what we do is, um, well, in a clinical settings, uh, modalities drop off, sensors drop off, they become dirty, they become uh, corrupted, or they can, uh, you know, they can be sensitive to noise. And so I think one of the interesting challenges of transitioning from an algorithm that works in a research paper to an algorithm that reaches that technological readiness level nine is that um, what you do when the data deviates from what you expect. Um, so for example, say you have a patient with a bedside monitor and you're getting heart rate, respiratory rate, blood oxygen saturation, uh, blood pressure, and you've created this algorithm that seems to be useful for detecting cardiac arrest or something like that. But then when that patient loses, you know, a heart rate uh, node or they their uh, PPG comes off their finger and things like that where the data starts getting corrupted, the algorithm that you train then immediately starts losing data. It's, it's not well adapted to that. It's not ready to be losing data at random and things like that. What are good ways, you know, as a clinician, you think, that people can be sort of creating um, scenarios where, you know, you can you can test this and say, okay, we know that these are typical ways that the data fail. And this is how we prepare and set, double check that our algorithm still works. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, excellent question, uh, Glenn. So um, let me try and answer uh, in, uh, in multiple dimensions. So, so first of all, you need to be sure that the data is at least valid to, to some extent to create a model, right? So, so even in Amsterdam UMCDB, there are probably many uh, data elements that are noisy. Um, and of course, I don't know by heart which ones they are. Although uh, the good thing is that uh, many of these data points have also been uh, validated by humans, just uh, by uh, by uh, documenting this in the, in the electronic health records. Uh, nurses and doctors uh, have done this uh, at least uh, every hour. But the minute by minute values, they are they can be uh, uh, off. Uh, of course, there are uh, uh, data cleaning techniques to detect uh, outliers, and you can use combinations of uh, events, a combination of signals to, to make sure your data is reliable, but it is always a risk. And the same is true, of course, for uh, when you have developed a model and you're going to test it in the clinic, that, uh, that, that you might uh, uh, risk uh, a lack of... Uh, of uh, yeah, of features, so to say. So, uh, so one feature may not be available that is critically important to the model. Now, now, of course, first of all, you want to avoid it as a as a, a, a model a model maker uh, or a, a model developer. And in fact, the the absence of a data point can also be a feature in itself, right? So, so that is uh, one creative way to uh, to deal with. Uh, with uh, that uh, option, but also it is always good to verify signals such as, for example, uh, heart rates. Uh, so this usually comes from uh, multiple sources here. So you have your arterial line, your uh, platysmogram, your EKG, so and sometimes even uh, more of those. So you can you can probably do a check uh, uh, in your um, in your uh, real time data stream whether or not a data point is actually reliable or is it really missing. Uh, but the most important thing then I would say that uh, these uh, are basically all non-problems because now we do not have a model. And then we have a model that might assist the clinician in a very good way or in a slightly worse way, but still much better than having no computer uh, giving an advice. So. So my motto is, it's always better to have a model than no model. And I guess adding on to that, you know, there's nothing stopping an algorithm from quantifying its own uncertainty and quantifying sure. its own predictive quality. So it's not, say, uh, 
different uh, sensors start dropping out and your algorithm is heavily dependent on sort of the joint distribution of those different values that there's nothing stopping you from just saying look the algorithm is still running and calculating something but like three out of the five of our best predictors have now dropped out and the correlations between those are now lost so maybe just stay tuned until this is back online um and uh add an extra grain of salt to this prediction right now. Well, so I totally agree. So, uh, so it's essential that these uh, estimates of uncertainty are built in. It's kind of it's so logical that uh, that uh, that uh, I would not even consider this to be a a a feature of a model. It it, it would just be a necessity. Uh, and uh, to add to that, I mean, so so given the fact that uh, that. By definition, this may be a philosophical discussion. It is virtually impossible to prove uh, causality with whatever model and respective data. It is very important to actually test these models prospectively in a randomized control trial um, and with, uh, by, with uh, assessment of outcomes that are relevant to, to patients rather than doctors. So, so I would say that that would be the ultimate proof of whether or not that it would be a problem that sometimes data points are missing, or maybe that would not be a significant problem at all. On the issue of making sure that your algorithms ultimately result in some type of metric that's most important to the patients, what are some things that are, as a clinician, what are some things that maybe data scientists are likely to miss? Um, where, you know, we'll focus on things like ROC or predictive probability and things like that, um, or, you know, predictive accuracy. But if it doesn't relate exactly to the actual clinical outcome of interest, then essentially we're optimizing algorithms with respect to the wrong metric. What are, what are some of the ways that, you know, we can make sure, what are, what are some of the things that are important to clinicians or patients with res regard to metrics? Yeah, so for for patients, the the well, the most important thing, uh, and I mean, and I, data scientists can allude to that, uh, is to be healthy, right? So mortality is of course a very important uh, endpoint uh, because almost every patient wants to survive, but if that survival is comes with a significant amount of disability. It may uh, sometimes not be worth the um, the treatment, and so what patients care about is can they lead a healthy life after being critically ill. So the ultimate outcome uh, is likely always uh, something like quality-adjusted life years or similar. Right, and this can have many aspects. Now, the problem is that that data uh, is uh, not usually available to data scientists, and in fact, th those data is also not available in Amsterdam EMCDB. So, uh, it is, this is not a bad thing per se because we can, of course, model towards other outcomes that I would call surrogate outcomes, and even mortality can actually be considered a surrogate outcome in that way, even though it is a very important and hard endpoint. Um, but you could also, for example, uh, <coughs> relate your outcomes more to functional skills such as uh, uh, Glasgow Coma outcome scores or scales or uh, absence of uh, ventilator, I mean, uh, presence of ventilator free days or delirium free days or uh, days on vasopressors. But they are, they, they become gradually less important to patients. They can be very important to avoid because it's physiologically natural that if you prevent that, your chances of having more quality adjusted life days or years is also greater, right? Because you first need to survive in order to have a quality of life. So, so it is good to model against these, but then these should always then be tested in real life, whether or not um, they are actionable. So, so they will actually produce the effect they are built for. So for example, if you model for mortality and have an actionable model, you first want to show that that model will actually help reduce mortality in clinical practice in a randomized controlled clinical trial. And then from those patients, you of course need to investigate whether that also leads to a life they want to have and quantify that. 
and that but that is the that is a long way right so so it is okay to have intermediate steps in between but that would be the ultimate goal of course and now um we've almost used up all of the time that we have with you today but one last thing that you mentioned that i think was really interesting was the issue of ultimately these algorithms need to be tested in uh you've said a randomized control trial um but I'm also uh, curious because, you know, obviously the RTC is generally at the end. Well, not actually at the end because, you know, you can always have follow-up surveillance afterwards. But um, it's uh, sort of that crowning achievement in testing the validity and the efficacy of an algorithm. Um, but leading up to that, you know, there's a large number of other things that you can do. You know, you have that, you know, just the initial research grade comparison. Um, which I consider is probably more akin to a um, some type of retrospective trial or historical control trial. What are some of those uh, the gradations of uh, convincibility in demonstrating the value of an algorithm? So you say you've created a paper and the research paper says, yeah, algorithm A compares favorably to algorithm B or compares yeah. favorably to do nothing. Where do you sort of step up to there on the way to an RTC? Well, so uh, first of all, make sure you talk to clinicians, right? And don't don't just do this uh, uh, once a year. Just do it every day because you will quickly grasp what they find interesting and what they consider just to be tools for modelers, right? Uh, having said that, so a typical way from a model to proceed to the bedside is, of course, first develop it. And then uh, one of the most important aspects is to use the right uh, outcome metrics. So even if you have a, a surrogate uh, outcome, uh, or, or let's let's take an in-between outcome such as uh, such as ICU uh, uh, length of stay, or uh, for example uh, readmission rates, you have to understand that 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 these events are usually imbalanced in a population, right? So that also uh, implies that the uh, area under the receiving operating characteristic is usually not representative of uh, the true performance of a model. So you would rather resort to the area under the precision recall curve for uh, for events that are uh, are more rare. So you, you see that uh, a lot that that people will only report a metric that they're used to, while this does not necessarily mean that their model is good. So then the next step would obviously to, uh, well, of course, you, you would have your your uh, training, testing, validation on a, a data set, but it is very important to also test it, test your model on an external data set, which is actually uh, where Amsterdam UMCDB may currently have its greatest value because there have all kinds of models been developed on many local databases and also some on MIMIC, well, many on MIMIC, uh, but it, the, all these researchers now have a pretty easy way to confirm if their uh, models really hold and are not actually overfitted to their specific situation they've uh, they've tried to model. So, uh, but then ultimately, to convince clinicians, you would need to uh, you, you would need to take these models uh, to the bedside, and uh, so they they would have to become part of a uh, software interfacing with your electronic health record. And then provide an advice to the to physicians or clinicians, uh, so you will, uh, in uh, in terms of uh, actionability, because um, because um, it is nice uh, to show clinicians that you can predict well, but uh, like I said previously, the the it is ultimately important that clinicians can see it the value for their patients, so for the one patients they, they have currently in front of them. Because otherwise, it's just like reading a trial that uh, pertains to many patients, whereas it is, of course, the individual patient that uh, that matters most to, uh, to the individual clinician. So to convince them, you need to move from bites to bedside. Well, Paul, thanks so much for spending some time with us today to discuss this. Uh, honestly, you've brought up about as many more interesting questions or more than we've even covered today but um this is this has been really interesting it's always nice to hear a clinical perspective on this and especially a clinician such as yourself who's familiar not just with the clinical application and the bedside operations but um 
also the algorithms and understanding what the priorities of this algorithmic development needs to be, because that is really helping making sure that we are heading in, in the right direction for um, quantitative sciences to actually be helping patients in the long term. Um, with regards to your data set, um, obviously this is a tremendous thing for patients down the line, but it's also tremendous. You've done a tremendous thing for the healthcare profession, for data scientists, for clinicians to start having more of that interface. And obviously just as sheer productivity of your work, you know, this is, this is pretty big. So again, uh, thank you both to you and what your team has done, because it's obviously a very big team that's needed to do something this good. Yeah, thank you so much, Glenn. And uh, can I just ask you uh, maybe to point your readers to uh, or your, your your audience to to Amsterdam Medical Data Science because because basically we're inviting everyone to play uh, with this data. And when I say play, I don't mean play uh, like a data scientist, but uh, treat the data like a doctor and uh, and help future patients. So that would be great. Yes, I can actually personally confirm that the website is very interesting. It has a variety of very interesting links. Also, check out Paul Elber's uh, group research page. It also has a lot of interesting information on it, interesting links. This is part of a community that, you know, as Paul mentioned at the beginning, that there are these, uh, I guess, these digital health initiatives at work. Um, there's a community there. It's a scientific community, but also, you know, very much a data-driven community. And... Uh, they're doing a lot of interesting work, and a lot of the stuff just even makes for a good read. So definitely check it out. We have the uh, we're, we're popping up the link in the description below, and uh, we'll all try to pop it up on the page as well. So, Paul, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Glenn. Great talking to you. Right. Well, that's it for this episode of the Pod of Asclepius. We hope you enjoyed it, and we'll tune in for our next episode. If you're watching from YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and leave a like. You can also follow us on our other social media channels, including LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Have a great story or presentation that's ready for prime time? Or know someone who does? Drop Glenn an email because he'd be happy to hear from you. We would like to thank our sponsors from the American Statistical Association section on Statistical Learning and Data Science section on medical devices and diagnostics and North Carolina chapter. The views expressed on the show are those of the speaker and not their employers, our sponsors or anyone else not saying the words.